Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing there heard this. They said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of, sorry, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. 
Father, we want to thank you for your word and we thank you that your word speaks to us clearly about, uh, about Jesus and about who he is, about what he's done and about how uh, we ought to be responding to his death on our behalf. And Father, we just do pray that uh, you would give us uh, clear thinking now and uh, soft hearts. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this year in particular is a year that we remember sacrifice, is it not? It uh, was on uh, Jan April the 25th in 1915, exactly 100 years ago, that the first Anzac troops uh, landed on the beach at Gallipoli. And so each day, uh, this particular event has become a focal point for us to be, to be remembering lest we forget, uh, for us to be giving thanks uh, for all of those who have paid the ultimate price in serving their country, uh, particularly our country. But today we remember a sacrifice which was made not one century ago, but rather 20 times that length of time. A sacrifice which has impacted the lives of countless millions of people, over a period of now 2,000 years. A sacrifice that has not uh, just implications for a short period of time or a long period of time, but a sacrifice which has got implications for, for our lives, for your life and for my life, uh, here, now, today, and forever. Now, we understand the sacrifice of the Anzacs. But in what sense is the death of Jesus a sacrifice? That's our question today, isn't it? As we uh, celebrate Good Friday. We ask the question, why is it that uh, people should like us? Why is it that ordinary Australian people, people living on the other side of the world from where these events happened, People who are living two millennia later, why is it we should be not at work today? Why is it that we should be downing tools, pressing the pause button on life in order to remember? Now, for many people, of course, uh, Good Friday, well, it's just another day off work, isn't it? It's uh, great to have another long weekend, especially an extra long weekend, a chance to get away from uh, the city or get away from responsibilities, a chance to relax on uh, the beach by Port Macquarie, and it's a time to uh, enjoy some scrumptious hot cross buns, which we'll be doing after the service, and to indulge in uh, a little bit of extra chocolate uh, than what we normally would indulge in. And uh, they're good things to do, aren't they? Maybe not the chocolate so much, but uh, they're great things for us to be doing. But if you're here in church today, I suspect that that's because you've at least got a hunch that there is something more about Easter than, than all of that, something which is more profound than those things. That there is a spiritual element to life, a spiritual element which you suspect is somehow connected with the, the death of Jesus. Now, of course, the best way to think about uh, the death of Jesus 
is to take a look at uh, what was written about his death uh, not very long after it actually happened, within a lifetime of when it happened. And that's why we read from Matthew's account uh, of just a few uh, moments ago. By the way, uh, if you want to have that open in front of you, that'll be helpful. And there's a bit of an outline of the talk as well, just to uh, show you uh, how far we've got to go in the talk and where we're up to. But as Joanne read that passage to us a few moments ago, how did you feel? How did you feel about it? If you could, if you could pick some words which kind of capture uh, the, the story, what would be the words which, which you would use? I thought of three words, and uh, my three words were undignified, unnerving and undeserving. Now let me explain why I picked those particular three words. First of all, the death of Jesus was undignified. I remember once watching a very graphic movie reenactment of the crucifixion of Jesus and I was watching it with a group of, a group of other people when afterwards a lady came up to me and she told me that she was she was offended by the presentation. And I asked her why. And she said, well, the reason I'm offended by the presentation is because I am sure that my Lord would have died with greater dignity than that. As we look at the historical account on your sheets, we see that the death of Jesus was anything but dignified. Um, have a look, for example, at verses 27 through to 31. Now, verses, the, the small numbers there that you can see on the sheet, and uh, they just help us to break up the passage a little bit. But let me read to you from the beginning, uh, verse 27, where it says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, spat on him, and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again, and after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Now, there was no dignity whatsoever in the way that Jesus was treated. He was comprehensively mocked. The Roman soldiers were the first to do so. The charge against Jesus, by the way, was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Uh, it was a scurrilous claim because it twisted what he'd actually said, but he, he, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so in order to mock him, they stripped him naked. They then dressed him up like a pretend king. They, put, uh, they wrapped his scarlet robe around him. They placed a very offensive uh, crown on his head, a crown that was twisted together thorns, and they stuck it on his head. And uh, they, they put a staff in his hand, which is to be a symbol of his rule, and then to cap it off, and you can imagine this scene, 
Uh, there is Jesus in the centre and there's a bunch of Roman soldiers bowing down to him in mock worship. They spat on him and they beat him. Now, is that dignified? No. But that all happened behind closed doors. His humiliation was made public when they took him out. They led him through the streets and then they nailed him to a cross which they then lifted up vertically and planted in the ground so that everybody could see. Now, in verse 39, we see that there were passers-by, just, just ordinary people who hurled insults at him. Come down from the cross, they said, if you are the Son of God. To add to the humiliation, Jesus was crucified between two robbers. There were three men crucified on that day, on that hill, and Jesus was crucified in the middle of them, these two robbers. Now take a look at what it says in verse 44. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And then to complete the humiliation, in verse 41, the religious leaders of Israel. These were men who were supposed to be leading the people in the things of God. And yet for them, well... They thought that their plans had now been fulfilled. They had Jesus exactly where they wanted him. Humiliated, hanging, bleeding on a cross in full public view. The laughing stock of Jerusalem. Dignified? Not on your life. No chance. No way. The death of Jesus was undignified. Now, secondly, the death of Jesus was unnerving. Um, Roman crucifixion was a very, very gruesome form of execution. I won't go into the details of it. There's not enough time. But it was designed to, to cultivate public fear. To, to let everybody know exactly who was in charge. Uh, the victim's body would be uh, nailed and tied to a wooden cross. Uh, he would be elevated so that he's hanging vertically. Uh, his body would slump and unable to, to breathe properly because his lungs were all squashed up. That uh, He would need to press down, he would need to push down with his uh, with his bloodied, nailed feet, uh, with his legs, so that his lungs could get some air in, they could function, uh, and all sorts of physiological things would be going on inside the victim's body, and until such time when he was just too tired, too exhausted, and would stop pushing down, and therefore would stop breathing and die. Uh, if he hadn't already suffered cardiac arrest. The, the man on the cross was absolutely helpless. But there was something very unnerving about this particular crucifixion. And we see it in verses 45 to 50 on that right-hand column there. 
Because we're told in verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Unnerving. It was three in the afternoon, but yet for three hours, what happened to the sky? It turned black. Turned black. Now, the scientists argue about uh, whether or not a, a solar eclipse took place at that part of the world at that precise time. But the important question for us is not so much how the sky turned black, but rather why the sky turned black. Because for the sky to turn black at that particular place, at that particular point in history, was unnerving. Absolutely unnerving. Because in the Bible, friends, darkness was a symbol of the judgment of God. Notice also what happened at the exact moment of Jesus' death. Now, normally uh, victims of crucifixion would cling on to life uh, for, for several days, uh, even through the heat of the day and the cold of the night and the weather conditions. Uh, such is our desire to, to live that uh, they could cling on to life for up to a few days. But Jesus died the same day. Far from being a victim, we're told in verse 50 that Jesus actually gave up his spirit. He didn't cling on to life. And if that was not unnerving enough, take a look at what follows in verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open and bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, in the first century, uh, Romans crucified literally thousands of Jews. Uh, after the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was at one point where they were executing 500 Jews every day. They executed countless thousands of Jews... It was common. But this one was unnerving. A blackened sky, a shaken earth, a curtain torn, people raised to life, and a victim who chose to, gave up, to give up his spirit. Even the hardened Roman soldiers were unnerved by what they experienced at that moment. In verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely, 
Surely he was the Son of God. You see, friends, the, the Roman soldiers, they thought that they were in control of this situation. The enemies of Jesus, the religious leaders, they thought that they were in control of this moment. But even the centurion started to think, there's someone else in control here. There's something else which is going on, something which is bigger, something which is greater. And that leads me to my third word to, to describe the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, it was indeed undignified. It was indeed unnerving. And finally, it was also undeserved. When that passage was read earlier on, did you notice some rather strange words which sounded like they came from another language? Uh, well, it's what you see there in verse 46, where it says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Now, um, Matthew, when he wrote this account, he wrote in the language that was everyone spoke that day, uh, in those days, and that was Greek. He, he wrote in Greek. And, uh, and yet here, what he's done is he's recorded the exact words that Jesus used in the exact language that Jesus spoke in, and that's the language which is called Aramaic. Uh, it's almost a dead language today. There are still a few people in some places who speak Aramaic. But in English it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, on the day, apparently some people couldn't hear Jesus particularly well, and uh, he was calling out to a, a prophet uh, whose name was uh, Elijah. They thought that Eloi, Eloi was an abbreviation of Elijah. And they thought that he was calling out for the prophet Elijah to come and rescue him. But no one came. There was no miraculous rescue operation from heaven that took place. For it was the will of God the Father that Jesus should die. And because Jesus followed his Father's will, it was also Jesus' will to die. It's unnerving because in fact we see that who is in charge here is not really the Romans, it's not really the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus himself is taking control. He chose to give up his life, his spirit. Now, why so? We've seen that the blackness of the sky was a symbol of God's judgment. But who was being judged? Was it the people who orchestrated Jesus' arrest, the Jewish leaders? Was it the soldiers who smashed the nails through his wrists and through his feet? Was it the passers-by who only days earlier had hailed Jesus as a, some sort of a hero but now were hurling insults upon him? That would be right, wouldn't it? That would be, if judgment was to fall on those people, that would be 
a deserved judgment. But friends, if you and I were there on that day, uh, we would have joined in with the crowd. I know that for myself, that before I come, came to understand and to truly value what Christ had done for me, that uh, I was living my way. I, I set my own goals. I set my own priorities. I set my own way of living. I believed in God, but I didn't really care about him. I didn't really trust in him. In fact, I really didn't really want him to be any part of my life. And there's a little bit of that in all of us, isn't there? Uh, you see, not one of us trusts, loves and honours and obeys God in the way that we ought. Um, we might believe in God, but we actually don't want God to be the ruler of our lives. Uh, whether we aggressively reject God and mock him, as sometimes we see in the media, or whether we simply ignore God with a cool indifference. No matter who we are, no matter how we live our lives, each one of us would have found our face somewhere in that crowd on that day. It's us who deserves God's judgment. We all deserve the judgment of God. But that is not why the sky went black. Because on that day, the judgment of God was not being poured out upon sinners. On that day, the judgment of God was being poured out on him who was without sin. Now, let me illustrate that for you uh, for a moment or two. I want you to... Uh, to use your imaginations uh, for a few moments, if you wouldn't mind. And I want you to, to look at the, the ceiling of the church. And I want you to imagine that the ceiling of the church represents God. Can you do that? Now I want you to, um, uh, to look at my left hand. And I want you to imagine that uh, my left hand represents your life. And now I've got a book. Uh, this book actually comes from my minister's library and it's all, the title of the book is Sin, actually. It's a very thick book. I must read it someday. <laughs> now, I want you to imagine that this book is not just a theological book about sin, but it's actually a record of your sin. It's a record of every thought, every word, every every deed, every action that you've ever taken in your life that represents that you're living your life your way and not God's way. Now, for me, frankly, that book would not be thick enough and would have to be in pretty small print. All right? Now, the ceiling represents God. My left hand represents your life. The book represents the record of your sin. Now, what does the record of your sin do to your relationship with God? It blocks it, doesn't it? It's a barrier. It, uh, it, it, it changes the relationship that you have with God. It cuts you off. 
And what it does is that the record of your sin means that you're actually it's saying that it's pointing the finger and saying that you're guilty, that you are guilty and that you are deserving, therefore, of the judgment of God. And now imagine my right hand represents not your life, but the life of Jesus. What's the difference between your life and his life? Well, the difference is that there is no record of sin because Jesus did not rebel against God, his Father. Jesus always perfectly loved, trusted and obeyed God. And that means that he was undeserving of judgment. But on that day, friends, as the sky turned black, as Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? God forsook Jesus. And a great judgment was taking place as all of our sin was placed on him. See, God is a holy God, which means that he cannot have anything to do with sin. It means that all sin must be punished because he is righteous God. But on the cross, God placed the guilt of our sin upon the shoulders of his son so that Jesus was cut off so that Jesus was forsaken, so that Jesus was judged in our place, in your place, in my place. In fact, he's judged in the place of all who now put their trust in him. What does it do for us? Well, you can see what's happened to us, can't you? that uh, there is now no barrier between us and God. There is no condemnation for those who put their trust in Jesus. It means that without a barrier of sin, it means that we can now be forgiven. It means that we can now have a relationship with God. It means that we can now even live with God past the day of judgment and on into eternity. But you know what, friends? It's not automatic. It's an offer. That's what it is. It's an offer of forgiveness. It's an offer of eternal life. It's an offer that someone else would bear the judgment for us. It's an offer to which we must respond. And the way to respond is to place our trust in what Jesus has done. To say, yes, he has paid the penalty for my guilt, for my sin. And therefore, with thanks, with gratitude in our hearts, to turn our lives over, to turn back to God, that he might now be the ruler of our lives changes everything doesn't it it changes our lives now it changes our lives for all of eternity
And it's why 2,000 years after the event, we've stopped work today to say thanks. Undignified, unnerving and undeserved. Jesus was undeserving of judgment. We are undeserving of forgiveness. But that's why it is that 2,000 years later, here on the other side of the world, in a place that they'd never heard of, that we stop work and we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. So the question therefore is, have you accepted it for yourself? Is this for you truly a very good Friday? Look, let's pray about these things, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for the death of Jesus. Uh, it was undignified. It was rightfully unnerving. And Father, it was undeserving. We thank you, Father God, that he, unlike us, was obedient to you and obedient even to death on a cross. We thank you that on the cross that all of the guilt of our sin was borne by him instead. And we do pray now, Heavenly Father, for each one of us that we would think through the implications of that. Father, for those of us who have not understood these things before, that we might actually put our trust in Jesus. For those of us who have been a bit forgetful, that we would be reminded again and that our hearts would be stirred to faith and to repentance. Father, we pray that we would all be people who are grateful for Jesus, both now and forevermore. We ask all these things now in his most precious name. Amen.